where we come to you confessing readily our dependence upon you for all things, life and breath, and a right understanding of your word. Lord, we pray that you would illuminate your word. We know that the unfolding of your word brings light, and so we ask that you would be present with us this morning. Lord, without you, this will be a vain act. So we pray that you would be present among your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever heard that saying that uh, God helps those who help themselves? You know, Jesus didn't say that. Uh, That's not in the Bible at all. Now, when I grew up going to church in North Carolina, my mom played the organ. Uh, We were there every weekend. I somehow got the sense that we're all basically moving on the right path, and if we get a little push from God, then we will arrive at our destination faster. If we live a little bit more like Jesus, if we do good to people and emulate his character, then when we die, we will be welcomed into heaven. It was the good people who make it there. And so we must try harder to be good. You could call it try harder theology. Well, this is a common understanding of Christianity, but it's not a biblical understanding of Christianity. This morning, we're going to look at the real thing, not by me spouting off my opinions, but by looking at what God actually says in the Word. The true biblical understanding of Christianity is so revolutionary that it's the kind of thing that you have to see in order really to believe it. So this morning, we're going to turn to the third gospel, the gospel of Luke, where we're going to be in chapters 7 and 8. And uh, if you have a Bible, let me just ask you now to open that up to chapter 7 and 8. You will be helped if, especially if you're new to the Bible, if you will open up and keep your eyes on the page. And the reason we want to do this is because at the end of the day, it, it doesn't matter what my opinion is, but it does matter what God has said. So let's open up to Luke 7 and 8. One thing Luke shows us again and again in his beautiful gospel is that Jesus regularly exploded people's paradigms of religion. You see, Jesus actually wasn't drawn to good people. He was drawn toward outcasts. We see repeatedly he gravitated toward marginalized people, the outsiders, widows, tax collectors, and on many occasions, women. This morning, we're going to see how Jesus related to women, and we're going to see that women supported Jesus and that Jesus supported women. Those are the two points of the sermon. First, women supported Jesus, and secondly, Jesus supported women. Let's consider the first of those. Women supported Jesus. You can see that in Luke chapter 8, if you just look at chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Does Christianity squash women? Are the biblical writings 
anti-female? Are they oppressive? That's what I was taught in university. But that's not what I learned from Luke. It's very interesting. Based on Luke, from the very beginning, women were integrally involved in the ministry of Jesus, even traveling with him, and verse 3 says, supporting him financially. What's striking is how countercultural all of this was, if you know about the ancient Near East. Women in first century Jewish culture were not highly regarded. You know, there was an actual Jewish saying, happy is he whose children are male, but alas for him whose children are female. Women's testimony was not even admissible in court. They were deemed to be unreliable. There was a special disdain for women when it came to religious matters. Another rabbinic saying said, sooner let the words of the law be burned than delivered to women. This was not a biblical idea. This was uh, the, the accretion of, of false and uh, prejudicial teaching of many of the Jews of that day. But it wasn't Jesus' attitude toward women. Jesus commended Mary, the sister of Martha, for listening to his teaching on one occasion. And to a woman who had been suffering from bleeding for 12 years, Jesus once said this, Daughter, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I love the way he addressed that suffering woman. Daughter, go in peace. There was the little girl who'd been dead for 12 years. Or for, she was 12 years old. She'd been dead, and he said to her, Little girl, I say to you, get up. And there was that widow on whom he had compassion when he raised her son from the dead. Jesus' care for women is a particular concern for Luke. And we see that not only in the Gospel of Luke, but also in the book of Acts. Turn with me to, this is my only cross-reference for the morning. It's Acts chapter 17, where you can see how women were responding to the Gospel after Jesus was raised from the dead. If you just turn ahead two books to Acts 17, these are a couple striking references. Look at Acts chapter 17 and verse 4. So this is as the gospel was moving forward and good news was being preached. Acts 17, 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And then look down at verse 12. This is in another city, Berea. It says, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Well, in the early church, where did the, uh, where did the church meet in Jerusalem? They met in the house of a woman, the mother of John Mark. After the resurrection, who is it that Jesus showed himself to initially? It was the very woman whose name is mentioned in verse 2, Mary Magdalene. She's the one Jesus supposedly married, according to Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. You know, if you get your Bible knowledge from 2003 mystery detective novels, that's what you're going to tend to believe. If instead you get your knowledge from Luke, which was written in the first century, then you'll see that Mary Magdalene was a disciple. She was a follower of Jesus Christ. She was not his wife. 
nor, as is commonly believed, was she a prostitute. People tend to get her mixed up with another woman we're going to be considering later. Here in our passage, Mary Magdalene had been delivered from severe demonic depression, possession by Jesus, and now she was following him. She was serving him and his cause, along with some socially prominent women like Joanna. Joanna was the the wife of Herod's royal household manager. And then there's this woman, Susanna, about whom we hear nothing else. Here's the point. Jesus overturned every social expectation of the day by the way that he related with women. Far from squashing them, Jesus elevated them. He honored women, blowing through cultural prejudices. I mean, no wonder women were supporting his ministry. No wonder they were caring for his needs. No wonder that it says at the end of his life, when he was crucified, it says at the end of Luke, many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. They had followed him all the way to the end. And even after the end, after he was executed, out of an intense devotion for Jesus Christ, some of them actually went back to the tomb planned to anoint his body for burial. And it was while they were there, on the way to the tomb, on that third day, that these women would find out the body was not there. Jesus had been, had been raised. Now, if you were going to make up a story in first century Palestine about the resurrection of a dead man, would you make it so that your first key crucial witness was a woman? who couldn't even testify in court? In a culture where women were so poorly regarded? Nobody would have invented the detail that the first eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection was Mary Magdalene. So it is with all the gospel accounts. You know, these, these four gospel accounts, they don't read like promotional literature. They read like real history. Women supported Jesus. Isn't it amazing that anyone gets to support Jesus in anything? Ordinary people like us are called to support the work of Christ. We're called to co-labor alongside him. You know, it's not that he needs our help, is it? J.C. Ryle said 150 years ago, no doubt it would be easy for him to convert the Chinese or Hindus in a moment and to call grace into being with a word as he created light on the first day, but he does not do so. He is pleased to work by means. That is, he's pleased to use people like you and me to advance the cause of his kingdom. That's what Jesus was doing. He was going from town to town, verse 1, and what does it say he was doing? He was proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. It doesn't say he was dispensing good advice. You know, live better try harder. No, he was proclaiming news of an earth-shattering event, the arrival of the kingdom of heaven onto earth. It wasn't so much instruction as it was an announcement that Jesus was giving these people. Now, lots of religions will give advice on how you should live, moral improvement tips, nice rituals to follow, foods and drinks to abstain from over the month of Ramadan in the Muslim world, or perhaps during Lent among Roman Catholics. But the gospel is not 
what we do for God. Friends, the gospel is what God has done for us. It's an announcement. It's not an instruction. This is astonishing news that Jesus has embodied. It is an announcement for rejoicing and celebration. You know, it's like William Tyndale, the guy who uh, produced the first printed New Testament in the English language. Tyndale once said the gospel means good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Jesus came to deliver people from condemnation. And this is good news. But what's even better news is, look who he did this for. He did it for the socially marginalized. He did it for the poor. Jesus came for those who couldn't help themselves. That is why women supported Jesus. But not only that, Jesus supported women. This is our second point. Jesus supported women, one in particular, a woman who appeared to be a prostitute, a woman of ill repute. Now look up at chapter 7, verse 36. Chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when this Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Pharisees, like this man Simon, were the religious authorities of the day. They were highly respected as law-abiding people, uh, going to great lengths to follow the religious rules, and to them, Jesus was an enigma. He was a mystery. He was a phenomenon who came out of nowhere preaching and healing with unprecedented jaw-dropping authority, but yet who associated with these unsavory people, sinners and tax collectors and even prostitutes. And so this man Simon was studying Jesus, feeling him out, trying to learn who this guy really is. Was he a prophet, as some were saying? And there they were, when all of a sudden, Luke says, behold, which means look. In walks a woman of ill repute. It took everybody by surprise. Verse 37, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner came in. We don't know her name. We don't know exactly what she did. But she's described as a woman of the street. That highlights not her address so much as her lifestyle. Possibly a prostitute, likely an adulteress, an unexpected guest in that house, to be sure. Apparently she was notorious. She was a well-known sinner, which caused Simon to think, in verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, 
for she is a sinner. Simon was scandalized. He had invited Jesus over to his house to check out his religious credentials. But now the test was over. Now it was clear beyond all doubt, clearly Jesus was no prophet. Do you know why? Because if he were, he would have known who this woman is. For Simon, holy people can only associate with other holy people. So if Jesus is a religious man, then how could he possibly associate with outcasts and especially this woman? She was even touching him, defiling him, according to some religious codes. You see, Simon believed in salvation by segregation. Jesus believed in salvation by association. And so she simply crashed the party. In the ancient Near East, having outsiders show up at events like this would not have been entirely uncommon. Uh, This was a semi-public setting. Think of it more like a street party than a private dinner. Uh, Wealthy people often took pride in having poor people come and quietly sit around the courtyard, maybe listen to the conversation, glean from the wisdom, and perhaps receive some leftovers afterward. The important guests would have been those in the middle, what's called reclining at table. In those days, as today in the Middle East and many of the Bedouin cultures, for festive meals, they don't sit at a table with chairs like we do. They incline on the ground with their heads toward the center, and they're around the circle of the the food, reaching in with their hands, and their feet are outside the circle. So everyone's reclining in that way. Sandals, of course, would be removed before coming to the table. And so... In this setting, it wasn't uncommon for the visitors to come and sort of sit around the outside and just observe what these important people are doing. What was uncommon was for this visitor to attend, a woman of the city. She had entered the lion's den, don't you see? Walking into the home of Simon, she had exposed herself to ridicule and rejection and rebuke. But not only did she walk in, no, she boldly approached Jesus as he lay there, and standing behind him as he's laying there, begins to weep and wet his feet with her tears, tears of repentance, tears of joy, perhaps both. You see, obviously she had heard of Jesus, possibly she had heard him teach in one of his public venues announcing good news to the poor, liberty for the oppressed. Doubtless she knew of his reputation. She knew that he was called a friend of sinners and tax collectors and the outcast. Somehow she learned he was there uh, at Simon's house. She wasn't on the invitation list. She knew exactly how unwelcome she would be, but she walked in anyway amid the glares, amid the whispers. And standing there at Jesus' feet, she knelt down and she undid her hair. And she began wiping his feet with her hair, kissing his feet, and then anointing them with an expensive ointment. Undoing her hair in that culture would have been considered supremely immodest, 
I mean, as recently as the 1980s, the Iranian Prime Minister Rafsanjani was asked about why his culture insisted on requiring women to cover their hair. This is Iran, 1980s. He said, it is the obligation of the female to cover her head because women's hair exudes vibrations that arouse, mislead, and corrupt men. What she did that day was socially unacceptable, to say the least. It was an extravagant, highly emotional display of sheer devotion to Jesus as he lay there. She had created a huge scene. Her tears, her hair, the opening of the bottle, anointing his feet. Now, as all of this was happening, I ask you, was anybody still eating? No, they were all watching this spectacle unfold. They were not only watching her, they were also watching Jesus. All of this interruption by an uninvited guest, an unwelcome intruder. It was nothing short of a scandal, but what was even more scandalous, if it were possible, was the way Jesus responded. One word to Simon, and she would have been cast out, right? One hint of protest, and the woman would have been removed, but Jesus just lay there, and to the amazement of Simon and the astonished onlookers, he simply allowed it to continue, accepting this gesture of repentance. The guests were disturbed. Simon was scandalized. And then Jesus began to speak. What did Jesus say? Verse 40. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Simon thought all of this proved that Jesus wasn't a prophet. That he obviously didn't know who this woman was. Little did Simon realize that all the while Jesus was reading his mind. And so Jesus fashioned this parable specifically for Simon. She loved much, but he loved little. She owed much, but Simon owed little? Was Simon really a lesser sinner than she was? Here's where you you get the irony. You get the twist in the story. 
in the story, the woman is presented as the bigger sinner. She's the one who owed 500 denarii. And, of course, at the social level, it was true. I mean, her sin was more notorious. It was more flagrant, more out there. And as Jesus relates the parable, she's the bigger debtor. Simon, on the other hand, was the socially respectable one. He was a religious man. He studiously observed the law, and he was pursuing a righteousness based on religious works. His sin in the parable is described as little. But don't you see, it doesn't matter how big your sin is when it's measured against the stature of an infinitely holy God. All sin against a holy God is infinite. Friends, what matters is not how big your sin is, but how big your Savior is. Consider just three points from this parable, just at this point. Three lessons. Lesson number one, all of us are sinners. Whether you're the rebellious type, like she was, or the religious type, like he is. The law-abiding citizen, the morally upright one. Simon and the, the woman were really in the same boat. Before a perfectly just and holy God, they both needed forgiveness. Now, he may never have committed adultery, but he was proud, scornful, and ungrateful. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Lesson number one is that all of us are sinners. Lesson two is this. None of us can pay our debt before a holy God. It doesn't matter if you're a respectable Simon or the scandalous sinner. As in the parable, it says they were both unable to pay their debt. And friend, so are you. It's true of all of us. No amount of good behavior can possibly make up for what you have done, what you have seen, what you have said, what you failed to do. All of us in this room are hopeless debtors. All of us. Which means, the third lesson... God himself must cancel your debt. But here's the good news. In sending his son to die on the cross for unworthy sinners like us, God has canceled the debt. But has he canceled your debt? That's the question. Has he set aside your sin? Only if you will receive Jesus. Only if you will repent of your sin and consciously put your trust in him can you be saved. Only for those who, like the sinful woman, will come to Jesus Christ and repent and receive him can you be set right. For those people, God cancels all of your debt. Colossians 2, God has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Outside of Christ, outside of this Savior, there is only guilt, condemnation, and judgment. You see, for Simon, this woman was just a sinner. For Jesus, she was forgiven. 
Simon could only see what she was. He was so blind to what she had become. Simon didn't realize that he himself needed grace equally as much as she did. And so his love was little, shriveled, miserly. But her love, her love was great. Look again at verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. That's a curious verse. We need to think carefully about it. Does this mean that she was forgiven because of her love? Did she earn it somehow by the noble character that welled up inside of her? No. Her love was the result of her forgiveness, don't you see? Her love was not the cause of her new life, but rather the consequence of it. The love that that woman was pouring out onto Jesus was not the root of her forgiveness, but it was the fruit of her forgiveness. That's the whole point of Jesus' parable. The one who is forgiven much responds with much love. Friends, when we're given new eyes to see the wonder and the majesty of Jesus Christ, we respond with an automatic reflex of wondering worship and praise. It awakens something in us. As the Apostle John said, we love because he first loved us. Friends, is it not amazing that Jesus loves the unlovely? His love is such that it changes all those who are recipients of it. You know, the world will love you if you're beautiful. The world will applaud you if you are excellent at something, maybe in the profession or you're excellent in academics or prestige. But Jesus' love is better than that. Jesus loves the unlovely, and it changes us. As Martin Luther said, sinners are not loved because they're attractive. They're attracted because they're loved. And as with this woman, Jesus' love awakened something new in her. He caused her to live in a new way by grace alone. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit. Friend, isn't this the kind of Savior you need? Can you imagine one more majestic and mighty and compassionate and patient? This is not a Savior who ignores your sin, by the way. You know, many people are looking for a Savior who will just sweep it under the rug. Not Jesus. He knows your sin full well. In fact, he knows it better than you do. What did he say of the woman in verse 47? Her sins are many. In other words, her guilt problem was real and objective. He doesn't ignore her sins, but at the end of Luke's gospel, he died for them. He died in spite of them, and so he makes this woman as beautiful as a bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. Friend, I don't know what you've done in your life. I don't know if you have been sexually immoral. I don't know if you have fallen to drunken debauchery. I don't know if you have soiled your garments through lawlessness, but I do know this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save the worst of sinners. Christ loves the ungodly and the immoral. Even Satan's castaways can find solace and acceptance with Christ. 
Friend, you cannot clean yourself up. To receive God's love and forgiveness, you must come to him just as you are, with all of your warts and sins and shameful failures. Bring all of your ugly burden to Christ. Bring it to the cross, and he will save you. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. That's what this woman believed. It was well with her soul because her sins were forgiven by Jesus, and so now she could face the derision. She could face the intimidation, the ridicule, the trial of coming into Simon's house. And let me just say, kind of a parenthesis here, being a Christian means you can do things like that. You know, being a Christian means you can accept criticism and no longer be shaken to the core when somebody says something bad about you. You can be honest in confessing your sins and shortcomings because the truth is, the person criticizing you doesn't know the half of it. Here's why you can be honest as a Christian in discipling relationships and conversations. It's because of this. No one can criticize you more than the cross already has criticized you. To be a Christian is to agree with the verdict of the cross. Yes, I am a sinner. I am worthy of condemnation, but Christ came on a deliverance mission to save me. The cross is more accurate. The cross is more devastating than any other criticism could ever possibly be. So the person criticizing you doesn't know the half of it. But don't you see the cross is also the finest mercy? It is a statement of God's love for you in Christ and his determination to change you by his spirit. And so, you can listen to criticism from wise and loving friends. You can even listen to criticism from ill-intentioned enemies, from the devil himself. Martin Luther said, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak like this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus, the Son of God. Where he is, there shall I be also. The gospel defeats our defensiveness, and it emboldens us to do hard things, uncomfortable interactions, just like she did that day entering Simon's house. And only now does Jesus finally address her. You know, up until now, have you noticed? He's only addressing Simon. For the first time here, he actually speaks to her in verse 48 with these words. Your sins are forgiven. And then look at verse 50. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, when it says your faith has saved you, it doesn't mean that she was saved by her works, like a work of faith that she ginned up inside herself. She actually wasn't saved by her faith. She was saved by Christ. She was saved by coming to Christ, by believing in him. That's what the Bible calls faith. So faith is the instrument that brings us to the saving redeemer. Faith means turning from all of your good works, 
You know, the ones that Simon was relying upon, his moral uprightness. Turning from that as filthy rags and receiving Christ. Putting all of your hope, all of your treasure in Jesus alone. Only he can save you. Only he is worthy of you. Only Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins. That's what so scandalized the people on this occasion. Did you notice their response to his pronouncement that she was forgiven? Look down at verse 49. Verse 49, Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Yes, who is this indeed? Who is it that has the right to forgive sins? You know, it's one thing for you to forgive someone who sins against you. It's quite another thing for you to forgive someone who sins against somebody else. How had this woman ever injured Jesus by her immorality? That he should forgive her? Only because Jesus is fully God. He is the infinite word who came into this world and took on human flesh. Only because he is God could he forgive her like that. And friends... Isn't that our deepest need? Our fundamental problem is not physical. I need healing at the doctor. It's not psychological. I need counseling from the therapist. It's moral. I need forgiveness by God. The truth is, all of us have wronged an infinitely holy God. He created us in his own image to be a display of his character, and we have all consciously, purposefully, turned away from what he intended for us to do. We have rebelled against the living God, and as a result, we have attracted his wrath because he is a good God. He is infinitely just, and so we're all under the condemnation of a holy God, and he is angry, and rightly so. But Jesus was saying, I've come on a mission to die for sinners. And I'm interposing my blood in between a holy God and a lost and broken sinner in such a way that reconciliation can be achieved. Christ is the one mediator between God and men. Our sin is an assault on God. And Christ came to take away the hostility and to bring peace and forgiveness and a restored relationship. So fast forward to the end of Luke's gospel. Where's Jesus? He's nailed to a cross. He's bearing the penalty for both the licentious and the legalist. So which one are you? Who are you more like? Are you more like the woman who was stained with sin? Or are you more like Simon? trusted in himself, in his own moral uprightness. How do you respond to people who are sinful? Do you smugly compare yourself with others? Do you look down on people? Or do you think, but for the grace of God, that could be me? Friends, Jesus came not for the smug and the self-satisfied. He came not for the religious and the righteous. He came for the outcasts. He came for the irreligious, tax collectors, sinners, immoral people, those who have nothing to offer God 
does this describe you? Or did you come here today, like I used to come to church for many years of my life, with a try-harder theology? That's what most people believe these days, including, I fear, many people in churches. Is it possible that some of you are like I used to be, attending church, would have called myself a Christian, was attempting to try harder, clean myself up. Good people go to heaven, so I must earn my way to God. Or even if that's not what you believe, because you are well taught, is it maybe how you live? Your subconscious default mode is, I must try harder. I must try harder. Are you trying hard enough? Friends, a lecture will not solve your problem. Therapy will not solve your problem. Starting over this week, it won't solve your problem. You need a Savior. And a Savior is exactly what's being offered on these pages today. You will be condemned on the last day unless you find a suitable substitute who will stand in your place on the day of judgment. Unless you find a Savior, there is no hope for you for eternity. But a Savior is precisely who's being offered to you this morning. Turn from your sin. Put your trust in Christ. He died for the powerless. He died for the ungodly and the immoral. Friends, the gospel means you can be freed from all of your condemnation. Not mostly free. Not largely free. But completely free. Just like that sinful woman was. Despite all she had done. You know what's interesting? The woman who entered Simon's house, she never said anything. But her actions spoke a thousand words. Her sins, they were many. But Jesus covered them all. And what about you?